Well, where do Christians uh, go searching for certainty? Uh, where do you look to know the truth of what you believe? What gives you confidence that you're on the right track when it comes to Jesus? Many Christians uh, turn to their experiences for certainty. So you hear people say that God's obviously working in their lives because uh, things are turning out well. Life's going okay, so God must be real. Uh, you know, they got that job, or their child got into that school, or the doors keep opening. And because things uh, keep going well, this gives them certainty. Trouble is when things don't go well. What do you do with that? Or people have certainty because of their experience of God himself. Uh, they have intimate moments with God, an almost mystical communion that they've had or have with God. And because of these, they're certain of God and his reality in their lives. Trouble is, a number of other religions in the world speak of having intimate communion with God. And they're having their experiences without God. Maybe we are too. Searching for certainty in Christianity can be a tricky thing, but it's an important thing because so much hangs on the claims of Christ. Our understanding of God, how we live this life, what we give ourselves to, what meaning we can have, uh, how we understand ourselves, our eternal futures, as, we, as we'll see in the coming weeks, it all rests on Jesus. And so you want to be certain of these things, but how can you be? Over the next two and a half months, we're going to be working our way through the opening chapters of Luke's Gospel, and he begins by saying that he wrote it so that his readers would have certainty about Jesus. Have a look at uh, verse 3 of chapter 1. Verse 3, chapter 1. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke wrote his gospel for a guy named Theophilus so that he'd know the certainty of the things he'd been taught about Jesus. And the basis of this certainty is found in the first three verses. Luke gives three reasons why Theophilus can be certain of the truth of Christ, three reasons why we can be certain too, and these three reasons are all grounded in the historical reality of Jesus. We can be certain of the things taught about Christ in the New Testament because they actually happened. It's historically true. We see this in Luke's first reason for our certainty, and it's that when he wrote his gospel, there were already many other accounts of Jesus. Uh, Luke wasn't the first person to tell Theophilus about Jesus. Theophilus would have could have heard about Christ from any number of people and there were already many other written accounts of Jesus floating around by the time that Luke wrote his gospel. Look at it there in verse 1. Verse 1, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. When Luke wrote his gospel, there are already a number of other writings about Jesus doing the rounds. And the point being that this news about Christ was wide open. It was out in the public. Jesus is not a figure that a few guys made up. He's not a fictional character whipped up by a few crazy people. There's lots of people writing about him from all over the place. Just like Jesus himself, when he was around, he was out in the open. He was public. He wasn't 
tucked away in some dark corner. Well, the writings about Jesus are the same. They're out in the open. They're not hidden. As Luke says, many had undertaken to draw up an account of him. There's lots of people writing, lots of people reading and listening to it all. It's all out in the open. It's subject to public scrutiny, including the scrutiny of people who were eyewitnesses of Jesus. At the time of Luke, there were still plenty of eyewitnesses around. And so dodgy accounts of Christ, they would have been seen a mile off. It can easily pick it as, a, as something that's false. And the followers of Jesus, they wanted the truth of Christ handed down. And so it's not surprising that these eyewitnesses were the ones handing down the accounts. This is the second reason we can have certainty about the things taught of, of Jesus. He's been handed down by eyewitnesses. Verse 1 again. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. And my dad grew up on the north coast of New South Wales uh, in a little town called Mullumbimby. And when dad was a little tacker in the 1950s, there were rumours going around of a Tasmanian tiger being seen in the district. Now, just in case you're not aware, the Tasmanian tiger is thought to have been virtually extinct on mainland Australia by about 1800 and extinct in Tasmania by the 1930s. So for someone to say that they saw a Tasmanian tiger on the north coast of New South Wales in the 1950s, it's a bit hard to swallow. To believe it, you'd want more than one eyewitness telling the story. In fact, I reckon you'd want a lot of eyewitnesses. And you'd also want more than one sighting of the Tasmanian tiger. Now, if you had both those things, you'd have a case. It's exactly what we have when it comes to Jesus. Not just one eyewitness, literally thousands of people heard and saw Jesus. And they didn't just see Jesus once. He was something of a public figure for about three years. And at the time of Luke writing his gospel, there's still plenty of eyewitnesses around to talk to and verify things. In fact, it was the eyewitnesses who were handing down the accounts of Jesus. What we have in the New Testament of Christ comes from those who were there from the first. Now, as an aside, uh, the historical reality of what we have of Jesus in the New Testament, it really is second to none. To see how reliable the New Testament is when it comes to Jesus, have a look at this table that will come up on the screen. Let's compare the, his the historicity of the writings of these three figures, Plato, Caesar and Jesus. Now, historians do not doubt the authenticity of the works of Plato or Caesar, but this is how little we have on them. For Plato, we only have seven copies of his works, and the earliest copy we have is about 1,200 years after Plato first wrote it. For Caesar, we've only got uh, ten copies of his works, and the earliest copy we have is about a 1,000 years after Caesar first wrote it. Compared with the New Testament, where we have about 24,000 copies of it, and the earliest copy we have is about 40 to 90 years after it was written. Historians, they don't doubt the works of Plato, and they don't doubt the works of Caesar. They certainly don't doubt the works of the New Testament. But if you listen to the media or to Joe Blow down the street, you'll hear people say... You can't trust the New Testament. There is no historical reason to do that. 
But Jesus does make some remarkable claims. People don't like what he's got to say, and so they have to come up with some theory as to why we can dismiss the New Testament, but the historical reality of the New Testament is something we can have certainty about. And the third reason why we can be certain of the truth of what Luke wrote about Jesus is because of his careful investigation. Have a look at verse 3. Verse 3. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Now, for our purposes this morning, the most important thing Luke says here is that he carefully investigated everything. And we're going to see the importance of that in a minute. But as another aside, Luke also says that he wrote an orderly account for Theophilus. And I'd like to think about that just for a little bit. Because it means that Luke, when he wrote his gospel, he didn't just find a bunch of things about Jesus, what he said and what he did, and then throw them down in some random order. Luke's gospel, it's not a sloppy production. No, it's been carefully investigated and written down in an orderly fashion. All the different things that Jesus says and does in Luke's gospel, Luke deliberately put them down in the order that they are. There's things that Luke is teaching us about Jesus, even in the order in which he wrote the different things Jesus said and did. So as we work our way through the gospel of Luke over the coming months, we should be paying careful attention to why Luke put things in the order he did. And if as we're reading some questions are raised about Jesus and we're wondering why did he say that or why did he do that and it can be hard to work out what's going on, the most useful thing we can do when it gets a bit tricky is simply keep reading. Like reading any other narrative, to find out how Luke's gospel fits together, you just keep reading because Luke wrote an orderly account. He'll probably answer our questions later on in the book. But look, more important to our thinking of uh, being certain of the things taught about Jesus is that Luke says he carefully investigated things. Uh, see it there again at the beginning of verse 3. Beginning of verse 3. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. Now, we've already seen the part of Luke's careful investigations that he spoke to eyewitnesses. Uh, we also know that he was looking at other accounts of Jesus when he wrote his but we'd also expect to see some evidence of this careful investigation in his gospel, seeing as he's claiming it for himself. So turn across with me just to chapter 3 and verse 1, and we'll see an example of Luke's careful investigation. Now, in chapter 3, Luke's writing about the time uh, when the word of God came to John the Baptist, uh, but Luke's checked out precisely when John received God's word, and so Luke rattles off who was Caesar at the time, and who was governor, and who the tetrarchs were, and who the high priest was. So have a look, chapter 3, verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John. That's a lot of detail, isn't it? That's very careful investigation. And we see this sort of thing right through Luke's gospel and into his second work, the book of Acts. Lots of attention to detail, lots of historical grounding. And please notice that as Luke does this, he is putting his gospel on the historical chopping block. Because if we go back in history and discover that these people didn't exist, 
or even that during the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate wasn't the governor of Judea, well, then Luke's gospel loses credibility, doesn't it? And the entire New Testament is like this. The words and actions of Jesus and the apostles, they're grounded in real time, with real people, in real places. The New Testament places itself on the historical chopping block. It sticks its neck out and says that if you can demonstrate that it's historically false, then it should have its head chopped off. The New Testament invites such critique of itself. And for almost 2,000 years it has stood up to rigorous historical examination. To know the certainty of Jesus Christ, Luke and the rest of the New Testament authors, they consistently point to the simple fact that Jesus is historically true. There actually was a Jesus of Nazareth. Thousands of people saw him and heard him. They touched him. He said and did remarkable things. He died under Pontius Pilate on a Friday. On the Sunday after, he rose from the dead, came back alive. It's all historically verifiable. It all actually happened. We can be certain of the things that are written in these pages, which is very exciting. Because this means that we are free to give ourselves to the truth of Jesus. Because certainty brings freedom. I have a mate uh, who recently holidayed in New Zealand and he went bungee jumping. At the same time, there was a lady who'd also signed up for the bungee jump, but she was uncertain. Uh, Now, probably for a host of reasons, and personally, I don't blame her. Uh, But she was uncertain about the whole thing. And so even after being strapped in, she spent ages up the top. Uh, Her uncertainty made her reluctant and hesitant. She was uncommitted, and eventually she said no, and she didn't jump. Without certainty, she couldn't give herself to the jump. My mate, on the other hand, he was certain. And as he was being strapped in, he said he made a pact. Because he knew that the jump was safe, he made a pact with himself that when the instructor said it was time to jump, he would just count to three and jump no matter what. Now, there were nerves running through his body. He was breathing pretty hard. His heart was pounding, but he was certain. And so when the instructor said go, he gave himself to the jump. One, two, three, plunge. Certainty about the jump gave him the freedom to give himself fully to the jump. And being certain about the truth of Christ gives us the freedom to give ourselves fully to the truth of Christ. Now that's exciting. Because there are some astounding truths of Jesus we're going to face as we keep reading Luke over the next few months. In just Luke 1 to 3, Jesus is shown to be the one who rules the world forever. He's the one who came to bring an end to sin. He's the one who has flooded the nations with God's favour and forgiveness. Jesus Christ is the one who will bring history as we know it to an end. He's the one who sets us free to serve God, the one true God of the universe. And he's the one with all power and authority and yet gave up his life out of love for us. And we can be certain of his authority, certain of his love certain of his salvation, certain of his, his sovereignty, and so we are free to fully give ourselves to him. We don't have to be caught wavering, wondering, hesitant, reluctant, or uncommitted. Certain of the truth of Christ, we can give ourselves fully to him, devoted, wholehearted, abandoning ourselves to his cause. 
So in your following of Jesus, here today, where are you at the moment? Wholehearted? Half-hearted? Zealous? Or lukewarm? Because Luke wouldn't want us to be lukewarm. He wrote his gospel so that we would be certain. But if in all honesty you find yourself a little bit uncommitted to Jesus and his gospel, it could be because deep down... You're not certain. You're just not sure whether all these things about Jesus are true. And if that is you, can I encourage you to look for answers? Because the Bible's okay about you having doubts about it. God's big enough to cope with our our questions and our frailties. It's okay. But look for answers. And the biggest area of certainty that the Bible keeps pointing us to is that Jesus Christ actually happened. The New Testament is historical. To be sure of the truth of Christ, you can look into it. But maybe you're sitting here this morning and you are certain of the things that you read in the Bible. We know it's true. We'll gladly defend the truth of Jesus, yet we're still a bit half-hearted in our commitment to Christ. For us, it's not a lack of certainty that we don't give ourselves fully to Jesus. It's because of our selfishness or our laziness or just being content to live the cruisy Christian life. You know, where we say the right things and we do the right things, but our heart's not really in it. What we're reading here in these first four verses in Luke is a bit of a wake-up call for us all. The things taught about Christ in Luke are certain. The word of God, it's a sure foundation on which to lose your life. Christ's kingdom will never fall, not even into eternity. And knowing the certainty of it all, we're free to abandon ourselves to Christ and his kingdom, to serve the one true and living God, to pick up our cross and follow him. We're free to give ourselves fully to Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, let's put behind us half-hearted days. Let's rid ourselves of cozy Christianity, as we keep reading Luke over the coming months and years, let's pray that God would awaken our souls, that we would live, truly live, giving up all for the sake of Christ, because what we'll read is certain and true. And so we're free to give ourselves fully to the one who gave himself fully for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the uh, way in which your scriptures have come to us and thank you for the eyewitnesses who handed down the accounts and thank you for people like Luke who had it written down and thank you for orchestrating things so that we can have it here today, 2,000 years later, and to know the certainty of the things that have been taught to us about your son in your word. And Father, we pray that as your people, we would share that certainty and we would uh, give ourselves fully in serving Jesus Christ as our Lord and Saviour. Father, thank you that he gave himself fully for us in death, that we might be your people. Father, fill us afresh with the knowledge of the truth of your Son, that for his sake, we might give ourselves fully to him and his kingdom. And we pray it in his name. Amen.